Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter three, where Paul read for us earlier. And I've titled the morning's message, The Mystery of the Church. But in reality, a better title would be Revelation of the Mystery of the Church. Um, Let's read our verses, chapter 3, 1 to 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it now is, revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This is the main message that Paul is wanting to get through to the Ephesians, primarily Gentiles who don't know anything about really Judaism and the role between a Gentile and a Jew. And this is the revelation. He's going to be revealing it to them in this chapter. Verse 7 says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me, by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you that you do not lose heart at my tribulation. Paul's in prison. What's he in prison for? For preaching the gospel to them which is your glory. All right. Um, Verses 14 through 21 we'll close with this morning because he says he's gonna pray for them. The first 13 verses is him beginning to explain what is this revelation. And then he says, when I'm done explaining it to you, and what we're gonna do is get sidetracked and do an in-depth study on what he's talking about here. And then we'll close with his prayer that they would be able to get it, that they would be able to understand the mystery with Jews and Gentiles actually becoming one. So that's our goal this morning. This is the final chapter in the doctrinal section of the epistle, the first three chapters. We have learned that the church is the body and the church is a temple. Now we learn that the church is a mystery. Let me give a preliminary word about what it means when it says the church is a mystery. In this sense, a mystery is something that has not previously been revealed, but is currently being manifest. In this case, it's the church, which was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is solely revealed in the New Testament. A divine secret was something that God had not revealed up to a certain point. Now he's ready to reveal it. And just imagine being a young Christian living in Ephesus and um, um, they're baby Christians and he's just simply laying that that out for them. Uh, This morning we will look at three or four types of biblical mysteries. So we're not just gonna talk about the church, but we're gonna talk at the church in different periods of time. That's where the word dispensation is used in in the first part of our reading here. Um, 
the word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament. Um, we'll look at three or four different types of biblical mysteries. The mystery of the church, number one. The mystery of the rapture, number two. The mystery of the one world religion. Uh, in, the, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the mystery of the church after the 1,000-year millennial kingdom reign, and then the final mystery, the mystery of the church in heaven, which only has one chapter given to it in the Bible. So those are, those are the things that we're going to be looking at. Let's look at the first one and look at verses one and two. It says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner, he is... Um, this is one of the prison epistles that he is writing. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Uh, let me give you the translation here. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul speaks of his present condition as a prisoner. He became a prisoner because he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are accorded new privileges, which we, we talked about last week. The promises, we went back to Genesis and the covenants and the promises that, that were given to Abraham. Um, now the Gentiles are accorded these new privileges uh, which he integrated in the preceding chapters. Those who are far off, strangers, without hope, without God, and not brought in through Christ because of all that Paul is going to pray for them. I mean, what did you know when you first got saved? Did you have it all figured out that God's got a plan for the Jews, he's got a plan for the Gentiles, and he does have a plan for the Jews in the future that's gonna be different than the Jews that would be Christians now. The Jews that are Christian now, doesn't it tell us that if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what you are, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile? The point is they're all one. But that's not always the way it's going to be, especially during the tribulation period of time. And so we read, um, we'll read this Lexus in here where he talks about praying for them. That's verses 14 through 31, and we'll end the study with that this morning. But how did he get in this place in the first place? Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts 22. Acts 22 is basically a hater of these Christians and especially he was involved with the death of Stephen, the first martyr. So let's pick it up in verse one. He says, men and brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they all kept the more silent. Um, he, he's presenting himself not as a Christian, but as a Hebrew. He's speaking Hebrew. He's supposed to, we thought he was a Gentile. I am indeed a Jew born of Tarsus and Cilicia, I was brought up in a city at the feet of Gamaliel, who was considered the prime teacher in this school, taught according to the strictest of our father's law and was zealous towards God, as you guys are today. I persecuted this way. It wasn't called the church yet. It was called the way. Uh, to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. He was going door to door, dragging them out put them in prison. As also the high priest bears witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were here in Jerusalem to be punished. Hey man, we gotta get out of Dodge. 
it's, the Christians were saying, it's getting hot here. And so a bunch of them just bugged out. They went to Damascus. Paul heard about it. He says, I'm going after them. Now it happened as I was journeying and I came near Damascus about noon that suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light. They were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go unto Damascus, and there you will be told the things which you are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light, I was being led by the hand of those who were with me. I came to Damascus, and then one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. And he came to me, and he stood, and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And the same hour I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now while you are waiting, arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And then it happened When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I was in a trance. And I saw him uh, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, you know that in every synagogue I'm in prison and uh, beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Well, we all knew that he was a part of the killing of Stephen, but this is really the only place that tells us what his job was. He was taking care of the clothes and standing by consenting, yeah, kill him. I'll, I'll guard your clothes here. And then he said, to me, depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. Now in these first 21 verses, um, Paul is basically giving his personal testimony. Have you ever heard somebody say, I had a road to Damascus conversion? (laughs) Yeah, and they're rare, but they do happen. And what they mean by that is the experience was so incredible and the power of the Holy Spirit was so much upon them or it was such a divine appointment that there's no if, ands, or buts about it. It was a road to Damascus conversion. What would not be a road to Damascus conversion? Well, every Sunday we say, if you'd like to pray, come on up, um, receive the Lord. And uh, you pray and by faith, uh, you receive Jesus Christ, just like um, the prison guard that said, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No fire, <laughs> no lightning <laughs> uh, from the sky. He simply believed it. And I would say the majority of people that become Christians is that childlike prayer. Lord, I, this is the four spiritual laws that you have in your bulletin. Lord, I'm a sinner. You know that. I know that. I'm sorry for my sins. I just want you to forgive me. Wipe the slate clean. And when you say that from your heart, just like the thief on the cross, no sinner's prayer, no baptism, no church attendance. No, but the Lord saw his heart. He says, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. So he got saved. And... um, They were listening to him, 
about his conversion, but when it says in verse 21, his job was, depart for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. Now we have a big mood switch. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. The absurdity, Gentiles getting saved. Not possible. So let's look at this mystery of uh, them um, being sent to the Gentiles. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter three. And let's pick it up in verses three through seven. We left off in verse two. How that by revelation, okay, now what was the revelation? Well, he got knocked off his horse. (laughs) The Lord appeared to him and talked to him, says, you're blinded for the next three days, go to Damascus. I'll give you further instructions then. He made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in a few words by which when you read you may understand my knowledge, notice, in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Might I remind you that the early church were only Jews, all of them, until when? Until Cornelius got saved. Cornelius was the first Gentile saved. So when we think about Pentecost and all the people that got saved that day, um, in our thinking we include Gentiles being there. No, this was a Jewish festival and only Jews would have been there. And uh, that's why they were so shocked when the gospel was preached to Cornelius that when it got to the part that says Jesus will forgive you of your sins, end of Bible study, uh, Peter was willing to go on talking, (laughs) but the Holy Spirit fell on him in such a powerful way they began to speak in tongues and all the Jews that were there went, what in the world is happening here? Gentiles can't get saved. And yet here they are, just like what happened to us at Pentecost. What precisely is the mystery in these verses? Let's read up to verse seven. And here's the main point of the study this morning. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, in other words, no different, of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. I love our opening song this morning. Grace, grace, God's grace. And we can't do anything without it. It's all grace. And um, Paul is saying that he was the least of the apostles. Are you kidding me? The apostle Paul? He wrote most of the books of the New Testament. And, but he considered himself the chief, chiefest of sinners. Why? because he persecuted the church. Who is the church? Well, you happen to be Jesus' bride. And um, he's happens, his thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea, according to Psalm 139. He never stops thinking about you. And um, what precisely is the mystery? Is it not the fact that Gentiles would be saved Now, having said that, we need to clarify something about Gentiles in the Old Testament. The Old Testament clearly taught that Gentiles would be saved. Uh, Several passages, uh, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand up for the people, uh, to it shall, and to it the Gentiles will seek and his rest shall be glorious. That's Isaiah 11, verse 10. Here's another. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings of the brightness of his rising. 
That's Isaiah 60, verse three. Isaiah also wrote, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold their hand and keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6. Zechariah also mentions it. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. In Zechariah 2.11. Um, and in Malachi. And from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be a great among the heathen, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 1.1. If the mystery is not that the Gentiles would be saved, what is the mystery? Well, mark it carefully. The mystery was that the Gentiles and Israel were placed on the same basic plane. They're no different from one another. And to the Jews, this was mind-boggling that that would ever be. By faith in Christ, they were both brought into a new body, which is the church. Christ is ahead of that body. We have some divisions here sort of a threefold division of the human race. All people were Gentiles from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 plus years. All people were either Jews or Gentiles from Abraham to Christ, another 2,000 years. Um, The threefold division is Jews, Gentiles, and the church from the day of the rapture from the day of Pentecost to the rapture. Now what he's saying here, the church has a beginning and it's going to have an end. And it's gonna begin at Pentecost. They're all gonna be Jews. And it's gonna end at the rapture uh, with the church being taken up. Why? So that God can deal with the unsaved Jews during the great tribulation. And to give you a better picture of that. We need to turn to the book of Romans chapter 11. So if we go there, please. We covered this last week in quite a bit of detail. And one of the main ideas was, um, has God gotten rid of the Jews because of Jesus? And verse one says, certainly not. Um, Paul said, I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then he gives a little warning to you and I about the church and our attitude and anti-Semitism is on the rise big time today. I think it's up there equal with the hatred of evangelical Christians, by the way, as we are becoming more and more despised because we have the audacity, let me preface that with, with what the outline that I saw this week of the new world religion. And it's an outline that says, this is gonna be the new world religion. And it's gonna be whatever you think is right, is right. And even if I think it's wrong. But how can we all get along unless we have this type of temperament so that we can all be one? Um, imagine that. If I was John Lennon, that's what I would say. Imagine that. <laughs> well, again, only old guys got that one. No religion, too? Yeah, no. Just everybody getting along. And if it's relative to you, it might not be relevant to me. But if it is you, great. And we'll put it all under one great big umbrella. And we will have everybody getting along and uh, it'll all be under a global system and a one world church. And that's part of our study this morning. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But there is this warning in here 
that we touched on last week and is basically saying to the church, better not be too high-minded against Jewish people. And um, he talks about them in verse 17, some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in. Well, the branches broken off were those who maintained their Judaism and didn't become Christians and the ones grafted in would be the church. We inherited the promises and blessings made to Abraham and that was one of the main points of our study last week. And with them became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. And then it tells us this, do not boast against the branches, against. but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Well, you say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. Why in Hebrews chapter 11 is Abraham counted righteous? because he believed by faith that he would raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he's considered righteous. Not because of what he did, not because of the law that he kept, but that he believed God, that if God made him a promise through the son Isaac, would be the inheritance of those that would be a part of his kingdom. That's why when a faithful Jew dies, there's this place that Jesus called Abraham's bosom. And when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a list of all these names of all these people that are righteous Jews who believed by faith and were saved by faith through what? Grace. You gotta put the two together. And so he's saying, don't get too cocky here because uh, they were broken off um, do not be haughty but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches he may, he may not spare you either therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity but to you goodness big word here if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off and they also If they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if they were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles being together, And then we have this scripture of of the beginning and now the end of the church age. Verse 25, it's a mystery. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this what? Mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You mean God purposely hardened some of the, of the um, Jewish people's hearts so that um, the gospel could be put out to the Gentiles? Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, another mystery, what do you know? Chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The word change there is the word metamorphosis. It's what a caterpillar does when um, they form their cocoon or whatever you call it. And after millions and millions and millions of years, they come out. And no, it takes two weeks. Two weeks. And they go in, they're this big. All they do is, is eat and eat. That's about it. And then they come out two weeks later, these unbelievable creatures. Multiple eyes, multiple wings. With the intelligence to be able not only to fly, but a monarch butterfly in Washington State in Seattle 
and uh, Monarch Butterfly in Appleton, Wisconsin, decided, hmm, I think I'll go to this mountain range outside of Mexico City to meet up with a couple billion of my buddies. Do you know that's what happens every year? They all go to the same place. Question, do they have a road map? Who gives them directions? How do they know how to get there? In God of Wonders, there's this this one line about birds and how smart they are. And the guy who's commenting on it says, next time somebody calls you a bird brain, they will thank you very much. (laughs) I've watched some of these programs. Judy and I just discovered one that's pretty much a takeoff of God of Wonders. But it's just showing the wonders of nature. And we're going back and forth, shaking our heads and go, how can anybody not believe that there's a creator? As it says in Romans 1, they will be without excuse. They know the truth because all I have to do is go outside and look at a sunset. Slam dunk. And um, he says they hold this, they suppress the truth. It means that it's not that they don't know it. They know it. They're just suppressing it. And he says they're going to be judged and held accountable because of creation. Because anybody with any common sense at all and can interact at an intelligent level or have an intelligent conversation or or watch a sunset, and if you can't come up with the, the idea and conclusion, oh yeah, this just, there was nothing, and then it exploded. Just let let that thing in. There was nothing, and then it exploded, and then you have everything. I mean, you gotta be way out there to to hold on to that one. Why do people do that? Answers in John 3. They do it because they love the darkness more than the light. They love sin, and they have no idea what happens to a person when they're born again And they get this new heart, and they get this new life, and they get this new joy, and they get this new peace. And I said, I wasted my life that many years looking for those things, and now I get it all free. And um, um, anyway, there's this new program out there. I forget what it's called, but it is really good about just God's creation and how marvelous it is. So behold, I tell you a mystery. We should not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, metamorphosized. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That's what we just read in Romans chapter 11, where it says, I do not want you to be ignorant again of this mystery. Well, Paul called it a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be changed. Uh, the loved ones that um, uh, passed away this last week, um, um, they're home. No more pain, no more suffering. The wisest man who ever lived said this, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Why? Because the living will lay at the heart. So I wasn't going to mention the Packer game today, but I'm going to now. It is better to go to a funeral than it is to a Packer game. What kind of Packer fan are you, Dwight? I'm a pretty good Packer fan. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. That's what the smartest man in the world ever said, Solomon. He prayed for wisdom. We don't think that way. Somebody has a baby, you give the dad a cigar. Say congratulations, everybody has a party. And what do you do at a funeral? Oh, you come in, you console the grieving, and we should, rightly so. Rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Weep with those who weep. But they'll get over it soon enough. Why? Because they're in a lot better place than we are. And so they're home. No more pain, no more suffering. No more sorrow. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Okay. Um, Between 25 and 26, we have 
the necessity why there has to be a rapture. The church age has to have an ending point without the world ending. And that is because of verse 26, which tells us, after this event, so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, a deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is the covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is the purpose of the tribulation period? Well, it's right here. Church has to be gone. According to Daniel 9.27, we know it has to be a seven-year period of time. Uh, there's gonna be a guy on the scene who I believe is on the scene right now, and everything is set up and ready to go. Currency, one world religion, and uh, once a couple million, many maybe million people all of a sudden are gone. What, by the way, what does Second Thessalonians call us right now? They call us the restrainers. We are a restraining force in the world we live in. We're the ones who stand up and say, look, it's wrong to kill babies, okay? We're against that. And there's others that um, imagine us not being here and now we're not restraining that anymore. And they're looking for anybody to put it all back together again. Well, that person's waiting in the wings. And as soon as we're out of here, I believe he shows up and he's the man of the hour. He signs a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And then after that period of time, in the middle of it, he breaks the covenant with it. All right, let's turn to Uh, what Jesus has to say about this in Revelation chapter one. Revelation one, the year is 96 AD. John is on the island of Patmos. He's the only disciple that wasn't martyred because the Lord wasn't through with him yet. And as he's there, the Lord Jesus appears to him and tells him to write seven letters to seven churches. And This is all coming from behind John. So now John turns around and he wants to know who's talking to him. And we read in verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow and his eyes like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Okay, picture that. Right hand, seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in, in appearance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, But he laid his hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which will take place after these things. And notice the word mystery. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels that can be interpreted messengers or relayers of truth. I believe it's referring to pastors over a local church. I'll explain the mystery of the seven angels and also of the seven lampstands, also a mystery, which you saw in the seven churches. Now, as I look at this, and when I teach through the book of Revelation, I, I lay it out in a chronological order. What do you mean by that? Well, here Jesus is talking about the church being a mystery. And as we go through time, um, I believe it is a time frame of the history of the church. The first one, Ephesus, 
We call that the apostolic age. It was the disciples to 100 AD. Smyrna is known as the suffering church. And from 100 to 312, um, there were so many Christians martyred in the millions. Um, we have that as a time frame. And then something happened. An emperor named Constantine supposedly got saved. Um, I would not debate if his conversion was genuine or not, but he put an end to the persecution, the killing of the Jews uh, or the Christians. Then from Constantine, from 312 to 590, we have the tolerant and unholy church of Pergamos. Um, We have the rise of Catholicism to the Reformation from 590 to 1517. Sardis would be Protestantism today, the the dead formal church, uh, 1517 till probably till now. And then we have the Church of Philadelphia, fervent, spirit-filled, love the word of God, um, lasting to the rapture. And then we have Laodicea, which I believe is Ephesus, which I believe today in a majority, I would refer to it as most of the churches in the United States of America. I believe they're dead, I believe they're worldly, and I believe they're lukewarm. And they last through the tribulation, um, to the tribulation, uh, to the end of the age. So, sort of a historical timeline. Revelation 17 will be our last one we'll look at this morning. Another mystery that deals with the church. All right, the rapture has taken place. Our current pope is a Jesuit. He's a globalist. He believes in the same God as Allah, as Jehovah. And he's the prime candidate for being the leader of the one world church. So what we have here in Revelation 17, let's read the first seven verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and walked with me and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in his spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abomination and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great marvelment. All right. The church that should have been the bride of Christ is here a harlot. The church is guilty of spiritual fornication, selling herself to the world for hire, This is a church that says, I am rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. Some churches will meet the Sunday after the rapture and they won't miss a member. But let's clearly understand that they are not true believers. They are not part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never calls them his church. He calls them a harlot. It is a pseudo-religious system which controls the wild beast during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. In other words, the Antichrist and the church will coexist during this first three and a half years. During the last half of the trib, the beast or the Antichrist destroys a harlot in order to set up his own religion. He doesn't anybody, 
He doesn't want anybody else being worshiped except him. Problem. We got a one world church. Gotta go. So what is, John's of course intrigued, wants to know what's going on here. And so in verse seven, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her which has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast that you saw that was and is not will ascend out of the pit and go into perdition and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was, okay, he was alive, and then he was not, then he was dead, and then he was again. What does that mean? That means that he's demon-possessed by the devil himself. He was, he is not, and yet he is. Then he says, here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits, well, that's going to be, I believe, Rome. And I'll prove it in a second. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Now, this is interesting to me when we look at uh, going back to verse six. He was amazed because of the blood of the people that were killed. Bear with me, we're almost through. It says that John marveled with great amazement when he saw her because she's intoxicated by the acts of the persecution and the blood of the saints. I'm talking about the Inquisition and I'm talking about the Crusades. Pope Urban II, 1088 to 1099, inspirer of the first crusade, decreed that all heretics were to be tortured and killed. That became a dogma of the church, acclaimed as an angelic doctor. Even Thomas Aquinas taught that non-Catholics or, or heretics could have a second warning uh, and then be legitimately killed. His exact words are, they have merit to be executed from earth by death. The popes themselves were the authority behind the Inquisition. They willed the power of life and death, even over emperors. Had any pope opposed the Inquisition, he could have stopped it during his papacy at least. Where do we read the Pope's thundering anathemas, that means eternal judgment, against the secular authorities who impose so many and such gruesome deaths upon their victims? Never. Civil magistrates would have detested from these loathsome murders in order to save their own souls, but papal orders to stop the Inquisition never came. Such were the faith, the fate of millions. They were real people, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters, all with hopes and dreams, with passions and feelings, many with a, a faith that could not be broken by torture or fire. Remember that this terror, this evil of such proportions that it is unimaginable today who carried on for centuries in the name of Christ by the command of those who claimed to be the vicars of Christ. They are still honored with that title by this church, which has never admitted that the inquisitions were wrong. She has not repented or apologized, and she dared to pose even today as the supreme teacher and example of morals and truth. Remember also that the doctrine which supported the Inquisition remain in force within the Roman Catholic Church even at this present time. And very few people are um, unaware of it. The seven heads that was mentioned in verse nine uh, is the city of Rome, and I'll prove that when we read our last verse this morning. Uh, the seven kings, it says five has fallen, 
and, um, and one is yet to come and he has to continue for a little while. Well, when we go through the book of Daniel, what do we have? We have Daniel beginning with Babylon laying out the kings of, who have ruled the whole earth. First one, Egypt. Second one, Assyria. Third one, Babylon. The fourth one, the Medo-Persians. The fifth one, um, Greece. Uh, the fourth one, Rome, which fell from within. And then there's one to come. We call it the revived Roman Empire. Another government that will have worldwide control. That one's still future. All the rest of them are past tense. Seven kings, five have fallen. And um, uh, the ten nations and the many waters are um, all the places that the Roman Catholic Church um, has been. Okay, let's wrap this up by turning to Revelation chapter 22. No, I, I got to finish. Uh, I got to finish. Let's go down to um, a verse 16. I'll cut a couple verses out here of chapter 17 because I want to show you that that is indeed Rome that is destroyed. Then the ten horns, verse 16, which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot. This is the Antichrist and those with him. And desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city. So now we know we're talking about a town which reigns over the kings of the earth. Question. When John was still alive getting this vision, who was ruling over the entire earth? Rome. And so that's how we know that Rome is in view here. And um, I I believe it will be the head of the um, one world religion that gets destroyed so that the Antichrist will have all the world worshiping him. One last mystery, Revelation chapter 22. Mystery to me. We have the church being birthed at Pentecost, Cornelius being the first Gentile, Paul's reading reason for writing to the Ephesians is he wants to explain that Jew or Gentile, you guys are all the same. It's going to be different during the tribulation period because what's called the church is actually a harlot and it is being exposed for its atrocities throughout time. Now what we have here is um, a mystery to me because we have the mystery of what happens to the church after the 1,000 year millennial reign. And the answer to that question is, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. But my friends, we're talking eternity now. And we have the end of the thousand years, new heavens and a new earth. What are we gonna do? Well, I don't know. But I like the attitude and what's in the heart of the church. And this is sort of, with all the heavy stuff going on, kind of lighten things up with the blessed hope that we have here. And um, we have... um, the conclusion, um, verse six, the, it says, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words and the prophecies of this book. Might I add the entire Bible to what I just said? This is the only book in the Bible, chapter one, verse three, that says, I'm special. 
Blessed is he who reads this book. The book of Revelation is a special book. It lays out everything that's gonna happen. And then John said, and I, John, saw and heard these things, and then I heard and saw it. I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. Remember in chapter one, he does the same thing. He falls down in worship, but what was said, he put his hand on John and said, John, don't be afraid. He didn't say, don't worship me. Why? Because he says he was the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one that was dead and who's alive forevermore. That was the Lord. This is just an angel. For I am your fellow servant of your brethren, whom the prophets of those who keep the word of this book worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. In other words, study the book of Revelation. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life. This is the only time that it's mentioned, it's mentioned in verse 27, uh, since the book of Genesis. It's the only place that appears. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Bible ends this way. And the spirit and the bride say come. Where does the spirit live by the way? Oh, in you and me. And let, let him say come and let him who hears say come. And let him who is thirsty come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away any of the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away um, his part of the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. How does the Bible end? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Now ordinarily you say, okay, Bible study's over. Wrong. Remember I told you if we're gonna read all of it, not add anything to or take away from? If I didn't finish the last five or six verses of Ephesus, I would be guilty. So I don't wanna be guilty. So let's go read those last verses from Ephesus because it ends with an amen too. The first 13 verses, he's describing a mystery. How the Jews and the Gentiles are one. And then he, he says he wants to pray for them, so I'm just gonna read it. It's Paul's prayer for these Gentiles who are in Ephesus. For this, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Stand, we'll close in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We understand why you don't want any of it taken out, added to, or taken away from. And I thank you that the Bible ends with the promise that we pray that even so come Lord Jesus. Lord, we read in the Psalms this morning that you are long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. We understand that. But in our heart of hearts, Lord, we really uh, pretty much had enough of this world, and we do pray that you would come. And we're so grateful for fellowship, worship, and to be able to sit down freely and open up your word and study it chapter by chapter and book by book. For this we give thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.